everybody, again, welcome to Technicolor Postworks. Thanks for coming um, to our discussion about uh, turning your elements, picture elements over for DI and visual effects to your um, visual effects company and DI facility. Um, we are a full service post facility. I don't know if, it seems like a number of you have worked here before. Um, and we're also one of the founding members of the Post Alliance and a big supporter of the organization. Um, our services run from full service film lab all the way through to Avid Edit Suites, picture editorial, color, final sound, and every deliverable you can imagine. Um, so the turnover to picture is really important for us because not only are we involved in the early stages when we create dailies that end up getting used in the final DI, but also we're the ones that you deliver back to for the final DI. So Matt actually has done a lot of work um, streamlining, helping us streamline that process here. Um, Ian's done work with us as well, just on um, Winter's Tale was the last, the last film one, that yeah. you did with us. Yep. Yeah, so um, with that, I will turn it over to uh, Ben Baker and um, Ian and Matt. Thank you very much, Haley. As Haley said, my name's Ben Baker. I run the education committee at the uh, Post New York Alliance. Um, uh, we've got Ian Matt here to talk about turnover to picture. Um, I see a few familiar faces who were at our last seminar, which was turnover to sound. So this time we're really talking about uh, the picture department and how we can finish uh, our films. Um, we may diverge into television, but this is largely probably discussing a feature film workflow. Um, we may have some options to uh, talk about the, the differences between those. Uh, before we start, at Post NY is the Post Alliance Twitter account, so feel free to jump on, take photos of us. I'm the good-looking one on the right, and um, uh, tweet about this. And also, if you're um, wanting to look at the website, postnewyork.org is the uh, website. So um, last time we talked about sound, uh, here we are talking about picture. Um, let's talk about pre-production to begin with. So. Um, Ian, your work as an editor, you've been working as an editor for 15 years. What are the things that you need to know kind of when you start a job? Like you start a job and what are you trying to find out immediately? Yeah. Um, so the communication is, it's important to establish some kind of connection to the camera department if we're talking about uh, picture to establish some certain things right off the bat that everybody in post-production needs to know about. Um, the format, the camera, the frame rate, the resolution, the uh, aspect ratio, the uh, like everything that that is going to come from your assistant camera, your D DIT, your DP, all these decisions that are being made. A lot of times, you know, a lot of times I am hired. Generally, you're lucky if you get a setup week. And during that setup week, these are the things that, that you're going to be talking about. You try to schedule a conference call that like, maybe half the people on the, the, the list really need to be on it. And the people that really need to be on it are the people that have the toughest time being on the call. So there's a lot of like wrangling and, and, and just kind of like trying to make that happen. A lot of pregnant pauses in that call. Someone yeah. asks a question, no one answers to begin with. Ideally, you loop in your DIT, your DP, a representative from your dailies facility, and you have a big powwow. Um, 
that would in also include me, probably a post-executive from the studio, just to make sure that they're getting what they need, and we all sit down and, and hash things out. And Matt, you um, really look at research and development for workflow for Technicolor. So if you're on that call, what are you trying to find out? Uh, well, very often um, representing the facility, um, either by accident or by design, we, we very often become the, the center point of um, both the, the discussion and coordinating all the, the moving pieces. Um, and, you know, sometimes the facility is only doing the dailies and sometimes the facility is only doing the finishing work and sometimes the facility is doing both of it. Uh, so, again, we, we sort of inevitably become that, that centerpiece. Um, it's not unusual when we have these um, marathon pre-pro conference calls where at least representing Technicolor PostRecs, there's sometimes 15 people, 15 coworkers in the same room, really everyone representing a different perspective on the, the information and the data that has to be collected. Uh, we have our color science team who's asking about the stuff that Ian's talking about, frame rate, frame size, color pipeline, CDL, lookup tables, the color management software that they're using on set. Um, we're trying to establish a relationship between the DIT and our color scientist, who's also our chief engineer here. Uh, we're also talking about sound, because that's part of our dailies process. We're asking questions that pertain to all the nitty gritty things about dailies, such as, is there an iPad version? Are we posting it to Pix or Dax? Uh, are we creating one or two different kinds of avid cutting medias at DNX 36 plus something higher? Um, very often we have our operations people in there, our sales folks, so it's this incredible uh, gathering, it's like a wedding, <laughs> um, of all these uh, expertise, and there's so many specialties and sub-sub-specialties, so everyone comes together and we get, uh, as Ian was saying, we get editorial, there's camera, and there's production. So there's the camera test, what do you, what do you need from the camera test? Ideally, it's something that, that gets everybody, like, that can be put all the way through the, almost the entire process. I'm not saying that we're going to, like, fully color correct the, the camera test, but the information needs to be there in a way that the facility knows what to do with it. Um, and, you know, it's also a good exercise to find out, like, how, when are we going to get things? You know, how, yeah. what, are, what are the breaks on set? Are they keeping someone at wrap to offload from the codex to whatever is going to the lab? Or are there going to be film break scenarios where they're only doing that at lunch, so I'm getting dailies like a cr spanning two days because I, they only send things to the lab at lunch. These are all things that factor in. And for those listening at home on the podcast, you can go to our assistant editor and DIT talk, which we did earlier in the year, um, where we really flesh out that Workflow. We talked for an hour just about that bit that he was just talking about. Right. Um, we might move on to then to the the first day of dailies. Then you're starting to get. I mean, I mean, Matthew, you would be getting them first. Really, the dailies start to come in. How are you organizing that? Keeping up with um, everything. What is that dailies process in a nutshell? Uh, it's a it's a real crazy sprint. I mean, ultimately, a guy like Ian is our our first customer in this respect, uh, or certainly one of the first people that's getting the results of our dailies. Um, where you know data is coming in from the field, uh, usually there are lengthy conversations that predate that milestone where we're finding out, um, you know, how you know what kind of hard drives are w walking through the door. Are they doing MD5 checksums or some kind of parity check in the field? Um, how is that being reported to us? Um, are there any kind of manifests that need to be created as part of that daily's process? Um, we are copying stuff obviously to the SAN. Um, simultaneously, there are usually LTO-based TAR or LTFS-based uh, LTO processes that are starting to kick in loosely around that time. Um, and then once the data is organized on the SAN, we begin the dailies process where we're creating... How are you organizing that, though? How, what is, the, is, is there an organizational structure that's just evident? Or do you have to agree 
to that up front? Uh, yeah, it's um, the the organizational. Yeah, well, I mean, the organizational structure is is truly never self-evident. There's always a discussion. There's always strategy in place, and there's also more than one organizational structure. There's an organization organizational structure that we put into place that is in the service of our LTO process, but it's not necessarily in the service of the software environments that we use to produce daily. So if we're using a tool set such as Colorfront OSD, which is our dominant dailies tool set, um, we are putting that into a folder structure that makes sense to that software. So that's a little bit more intuitive to the human element. It's usually based on shoot date, mm -hmm. camera type, frame size, raster, frame size, raster, frame rate, etc. Um, and then there's another folder structure which is specifically uh, custom tailored to the LTO process. Uh, we're not making duplicate copies of the data, by the way. We're using something known as hard links so that the data can be represented in more than one folder structure. This is all being done by people who are qualified to do this kind of thing, um, people who effectively manage the SAN environment. And that's before uh, the first frame of image and the first uh, sample of sound is really heard. So that's the, the organizational structure gets a lot of attention, certainly at the outset, because you're really defining the genetics of the project at that point in time. Yeah, and it matters for your archive, really, doesn't it? It matters for everything. So and then how quickly you can get to it. And, and, and absolutely how quickly you can get to it when we need to for VFX pulls and for finishing eventually. So you've created, um, you know, it's the next morning, there's a drive or there's a download link to for editorial to pick up. Um, how are you then organizing that in the Avid when you're getting your first day, your second day? Right. The the basic, you know, the, what I get from the lab is usually a bin with a date, you know. And sometimes if they shot three cameras that day, I'll have an A camera bin, a B camera bin, and a C camera bin, depending on how they're getting it to me. I mean, I try to get stuff. I don't get the entire day in one shipment. I'll usually have them feed me stuff as, as they get through it, depending on when they're working on it. Um, so that date bin is just pretty much the root level of everything. But when it, you know, I take it from there to prep for the editor, and usually the editor will never see that. Um, that's, that's just kind of the, 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 the bones and, and muscle of the Avid project. And, and then, how are you prepping for the editor then? Um, that's a that's personal preference for them, but generally they want, uh, you know, if we're talking multi cameras, they'll be grouped into, you know, they'll be separated into bins. Each each scene has its own bin. If they shot more than one scene in a day, um, they'll have multiple bins. Uh, if they're multiple cameras, we'll have group clips that are all in sync with each other. So when you load one clip, you ha you see all three cameras that they shot for that one clip. Um, if you're working with an editor who likes to use script sync, you get into that all world. Um, and some editors work exclusively from that. They don't even use scene bins. But that's that's like, yeah. I mean, mostly it's just based on whatever they, what, the simplest way to do it. We're now far from a world where there is a daily screening. So how are you, are you having to prepare stuff? Or is that you, Matthew? You, there's H.264s being made somewhere. Uh, well, I guess dailies are screened in one of, it's a multitude of ways, really. I mean, I assume there's some kind of, actually, you would be able to answer this best, but there's, it can be viewed in, in the cutting room, obviously. Yeah. Uh, we're creating proxies, uh, which are being uploaded to web-based review and approval websites, such as PIX or DAX or Media Silo, and, that, and to that effect. Um, for Depending on the production, either D, DP, DIT, director, etc., that team may also want a version of the dailies on an, on an iPad. Um, 
uh, which you know introduces all kinds of uh, challenges in terms of getting the color science to match all these different. That's another big thing about da the Daly's process is is fine tuning the color science so that the way it looks on all these different devices, many of these devices being, pardon the word, consumer devices, um, they really do have to match. So that's also part of our our pre pro process. Um, are you are you screening everything in in the Avid? I try to as much as I can. I mean, they shoot so much. Uh, I kind of got into this when we were doing the sound turnover talk, but it's it's a lot of material now that everything is being shot digitally. I try to, I mean, I need to look at it for sure. Um, a lot of times the easiest way to do that is in, you know, once you have everything grouped, you look at it all together and you just kind of keep, you open up your eyeballs to like try to absorb it all at the same time and you're watching it at double speed. Um, you're, it's, it's not ideal. Um, a lot of, t I, I have, you know, I've gotten pretty good at, at just kind of going through the material to, to look at, I mean, I, I put myself in an editor's mindset and I would try to anticipate what the editor would care about with this shot and focus on that. Are you mocking um, it up in the Avid? Are you? Uh, that's, I'll, I'll do whatever the editor wants to do. It's a lot of times they will want certain ways of, you know, streamlining so they can find what they're looking for. Script sync factors into that a great deal. Um, and, you know, that's probably a, a worthy of its own panel at this <laughs> point. But uh, the, yeah, the, the preparation is different for every film. The screening, going back to the answer, to answer the question about screening, it's like we're all looking at it. And someone, if we need to look at it in an environment more robust than what we can do on our plasmas, we will come to the lab. We will try to look at it in the best possible way. If we caught this, most of the time, focus is the reason. You know, if if we yeah. can't judge focus at DNX thirty six, um, you need to look at it in a better way. And and we've done actually that here. It depends on the job. It depends. You know, if it's a, a television episodic uh, television show or if it's a feature film, but it is on occasion a client, a production will come here and we'll actually have a screening, um, hopefully in a projection environment if that's if that's the uh, the objective. And either they're screening uh, the same Avid Media, perhaps just on a, bi a much bigger screen, or they're looking at the raw camera data through the color pipeline on the actual daily system. We've done that too, and and some of that is just to supply the necessary confidence. That you know, as Ian said, that things are in focus and the and the um, the color objective is being met to some degree and or to and, or completely. With cameras now shooting up to five K, six K, is the DVD dead? Can we say that the DVD is dead? I hope so. Um, strangely, no. Um, the the, the great irony about uh, our digital age is that uh, you know the it, it is very funny that the the smallest and least impressive and least expensive element very often drives the process. It's ironic that we, we create dailies roles for editorial that are trimmed to the duration of what a standard definition DVD can <laughs> hold, uh, very often even if there isn't a DVD deliverable because there might be a DVD deliverable. Right. And of course, they want the DVD naming convention to match the naming convention of the Avid bin. So again, it's, it's, that, it's that smallest little nugget that is driving the entire dailies process all the way from the cutting media to the pick stacks and all and everything in between. I did have a producer in the UK ask me why his iPad didn't look exactly like the sixty thousand dollar projector that was in the DI room, and I really couldn't have an answer for him. Yeah. Um, multiple formats. I mean, it's uh, now, you know, people aren't religiously sticking to thirty-five mil anymore. You might have a 
you're promised just an Alexa shoot and then someone pulls out a 5D out of their car, there's a GoPro on the end of the skateboard. How are you dealing with multiple formats? Is there a way that you're dealing with that differently? Um, yeah, it's, um, it is very different actually and it, it depends entirely on what, what format we're talking about. Um, you know, if it's, um, um, I'd say the, the frame size and the raster is really what we, we probably sweat the most and pay the most attention to. So if you have something that is, uh, you know, inherently a raster or a frame size that is not intrinsic to the final deliverable, um, decisions have to be made during the dailies process in terms of framing. So that generates discussions with DP and DIT and production in terms of, well, where's the framing chart? So there's a lot of those conversations. Um, if you go kind of down market, so to speak, in terms of the camera system, which is very common, even on large-scale, studio-based, motion picture, cinema projects, um, they're still shooting on everything from 5K Red to possibly a 5D. So that introduces the possibility that you may need to make, um, as we've called it, a mezzanine format, something that is a new representation of that camera media just in a format that is more conducive to the rest of the post-process. Um, if you are printing dailies, for example, from uh, a large raster such as 5K Red or, uh, you know, or ARRI RAW, um, you may also be simultaneously starting to think about printing uh, DPX files for eventual VFX pulls. So all these things are, are happening concurrently when multiple formats are, are invoked. The one thing that motion picture film doesn't typically deal with is the, is the, is the mixed frame rate thing. That's more of a, more of a, a, a pain and strain of the, of the television world. At least motion picture film is pr you know, predominantly shooting in 24 frames per second. But it's all the different codecs and rasters that we have to, that we have to support. And then, Ian, are you treating different formats differently? Or is that just, by the time it gets to you, it's all one avid format? No, I, need to, I definitely need to track multiple formats. I mean, if, if we are in the same frame rate, I do have the luxury of at least keeping it within the master project. Um, there are times where I need to start a whole new project to handle a different format and then try yeah. to get and then integrate those clips into the editor's world in the way that he or she will not even really need to pay attention to. Like that's that's on me to track it as long as they can cut with it. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I, I need to track all of that stuff. And it's really important when we're turning over down the line. I'll get to that when when we. The color science behind multiple formats also makes it very challenging too. The color pipeline that you have in place for your ARRI RAW is not the same as what you have for, for red log film and, and, and it's not the same as uh, for ProRes as well. So um, that's another thing that, that multiple formats introduce is even greater discipline has to be paid attention to what that color pipeline is per camera format um, so that we are creating something that is authentic to the, to the camera original. And you've got to take every format and hit the same target for the dailies, don't you really? The Rec 709, to bring it all into Rec 709. Yeah, when, what we're printing to DNX36, Avid Media or ProRes, if they're coming on Premiere, um, really has to has to ha share that same target. So yes, it's still a 1920 by 1080 frame of some kind. It's usually DNX36. On bigger shows, it might be uh, something bigger like DNX115 or 175, or the equivalent ProRes. Ian, what's the, what's the key other information that you're getting? Because it's not only... Um, I mean, you're getting all these reports, you're getting, I mean, how are you dealing with all of that? Uh, does that come to you from the dailies? Do you have to do stuff with the camera reports and sound reports? I need to, I, I definitely need to check all of it and, and make sure that it, it, for the most part, it all jibes with each other. You'll, you'll have discrepancies. I mean, this, this happened on 35 millimeter. This is nothing new. You'll have discrepancies all over the place camera department labels something as, as a different camera roll from your metadata from your bin and it's like 
at a certain point you have to find out like is it worth even fixing this mistake or living with it um, it's uh, a lot of times to change a piece of metadata can really open up a can of worms um, and you you're better off just just living with it um, the information that travels from set is very consistent from the way it was 30 years ago you get camera reports you get script notes you get sound reports um, hopefully you can read them and you know the the department is is like really methodical about them and it, but it a circle takes a concept that people take seriously anymore or are they just circling every other take um, people want to know uh, I, I in in the sense of like telling the lab to only send selects that I mean we get everything now um, yeah so it used to be that like it was expensive. They would only tell us you know? any selects, you yeah. know, and, and stuff like that. Those days are kind of gone, I think. Um, but I track that information in the Avid project. The editor wants to know what the selects are. Um, there are, you know, there are, that stuff definitely needs to stay in, in the world somewhere. We've hit a point now where, I mean, uh, my um, background is in really traditional DI film scanning and that kind of thing, and, you know, it would take weeks to get a project to be digital. Now we have digital formats. The film I'm working on at the moment, we have two eight terabyte lacy drives that contains the entire film. How does that change what you're doing then? I mean, we, we talked before as well about some, some of the larger films are now putting NASAs and SANS that they just kind of plonk here while you're doing dailies and then airlift to the DI house. Yeah, that's actually becoming more common. Um, you know, the, the funny irony about that is even though the cost of storage continues to come down, the shooting ratios continue to go up. So, we, so you know, that, that's the biggest joke as well. Storage is so inexpensive, and, and that is true, uh, but it depends on the kind of storage. And, of course, you have this inverse curve um, or this inverse direction where shooting ratios are really going up, not to mention, as everybody in this room knows, it, it's not like the frame sizes of the sensors are getting smaller. The frame sizes of the sensor uh, sensors are getting bigger. So um, storing all the data is really one of the biggest things that we deal with and have to manage well. Uh, and there's it's a it's a multi-tiered strategy that involves our SAN environment. It involves both uh, both formatting of LTOs, and it also involves what you're talking about, which is using um, self-contained but protected uh, forms of RAID storage that are uh, that are mobile, and they can be intentionally and strategically separate from the rest of the facility if that's the goal. Um, they can support drive failure if that's what happens, but they can also be put into a box and sent into the field or sent to a VFX facility, uh, or it can be, it, like I said, it's mobile. So that's that's another strategy that is becoming more and more common, both for us and for other DI facilities. I mean, I've noticed that people are stripping out now even loading from LTOs in, in a conform budget. You know, uh, it's kind of expected that. Well, we wouldn't recommend uh, not doing that. <laughs> yes. uh, we would say a supplementary strategy is to have the, the, big, the big raid, uh, which does make it more of a movable feast. But I wouldn't necessarily suggest that we want to eliminate something like LTO storage. You really, want three, you really want three copies. Well, redundancy is, is, is huge. Rend the LTO storage, I mean, the LTO was the primary master, and then spinning disk can only be considered secondary. Isn't that right? Um, well, I'm not sure what, what you would consider primary and secondary. I mean, the, it depends on what phase of the process you're in, I suppose. Uh, you know, in your, if you are conforming the film, which we're going to talk about later on, uh, I would say that that RAID block of storage or the pool of storage sitting on your SAN environment is your dominant and most important form of storage. Certainly the LTO is, under those circumstances, your, your backup. Uh, we've had motion picture film clients that have 
you know, stopped shooting and stopped editing, and they've gone away, and they've come back six months later. Yeah. Under those circumstances, your LTO storage is the most important thing because that's where everything is resuming from. I think I mean more in terms of permanence. LTO is far more. Yes, I'm sorry. Durable. In, in terms of in terms of your asset. Yes. Uh, the asset belongs on LT, on verified LTO storage, and by verified, I mean not just somebody. Uh, saying that they verified it, we actually, part of our dailies process is we take the ALE directly out of the dailies process and we are cross-checking it against what landed physically on a piece of tape. That ALE is your record of what was shot and what was processed and what editorial saw. And we need to make sure that the ALE matches, both in terms of time code, uh, file name, and metadata, that it actually landed on the tape. Uh, and we may have more than one set of LTOs to verify. There could be an LTFS for the studio. There could be a TAR for the, for another for our internal backup. So yes, that is that is that is your motion picture. That is your negative. That's your OCN. And your the job here is that within the dailies files themselves that are within editorial, they are able to reference any of those different master formats. Sorry, say that again? Well, they were able to reference both the spinning disk and the LTO. If you had a job which was making LTOs and putting it down to a NAS, how, how, is, how does that Maybe, happen? maybe not. I mean, it really depends on the chronology of the events as they unfold. Um, if LTOs are happening simultaneously, there may be a way where we can communicate to editorial the name of the LTO tape, and Ian can put that into a column in his, in his avid bin. But sometimes the LTO tapes are happening a few days later or much later, depending on the way the job is taking shape. In a perfect world, yes, you would have the name of the LTO tape in an Avid, uh, a column in an Avid bin. I don't know how often you're seeing that, actually, depending on the film that you're working on. I, I haven't, but I would love it. Um, it, it I mean, it, it's, another, it's another thing to track. It's not, a, it's not ter terrible. I mean, somebody can enter that information. Um, yeah, uh, and just on Winter's Tale, I think it was like every two weeks we would, you know, we would get an email from our dailies project manager that would say, like, we're we want to clear the following information off of our SAN. Is it okay? Or, you know, or it would be the other way around. The email would come from the DIT saying, my on-set backup is getting full. I want to dump this stuff. Is it okay? Do you have it at the lab? Is it all accounted for? Then we'd get into like clearing space from LTO. But it is essentially, at the end of the day, it's all still seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, steam, seems to be based on shoot data and camera roll. Um, to a certain extent. I mean, that is the information I see in the Avid that is like going to, you know, that travels through back to the lab and, and getting, you know, knowing which tapes to restore from, yeah? Uh, yeah, shoot data and camera roll, that's probably the most common way of doing it. In the television role, they sometimes ask us to organize by episode, which actually adds uh, some complexity to the process just because if they're checkerboarding, for example, if they're shooting more than one episode at a time, um, LTO tapes have a finite capacity, so you have to. There's a little bit more juggling involved there, but for if it's not episodic television and you don't have episodes to organize by, then yes, it's typically organized by by shoot date and camera roll. I mean, with all this metadata we're collecting, are you still insisting on burn-ins, or do you get clean picture? Do you still want that? What are you asking for? I do still use burn-ins. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you have to get creative if there isn't any room on the screen, like if you if you want the full frame, but you usually try to get them in there somewhere. They are useful. Um, Certainly, a lot of times, a lot of times that is the key. You know, somehow, usually in an ideal world, it all comes from the same place and and it all carries all the way through. But you do still find like an orphan somewhere. Yeah. it's lost its way. Keys to various information in the burn-ins.
So the editor started, the editor's working away. Um, what are the organising principles here? I mean, are you mapping out reels from the get-go? I mean, do you know where those markers are? Do you know, like, oh, well, up to this scene, that's going to be real one, or are you kind of piecing it together as you go? How is that happening? Most of the editors I'm working with are still based, you know, they think about things in terms of 35 millimeter, and and shows are still, you know, eventually printing film, you know, to, to go out to theaters. So they do still think in terms of 2,000 foot reels, and they try to balance their reels in their cut. The 18 same minutes way, is still a rule. With that in mind, yeah. Um, and, you know, all the conventional like rules apply. Try not to split a scene in half across two reels. Try not to break a music cue in half, you know, all these things. And, you know, that will be a, a moving target as we go, but for the most part, that is the I mean, starting are you doing point. that, or do you find the editor is kind of aware of that, and he's saying, or she is saying, well, this scene's going to go into reel two or three, or, or are you having to do that in the background? Most of the editors I've worked with are pretty experienced with balancing their reels, so they, they, they just kind of decide. Um, it, sometimes, you know, when we get, a, get into a situation where things have moved around quite a bit and now all of a sudden one reel got like extremely fat, we will kind of come up with another solution together. But, you know, most of, like I said, most of them are still based in this film mentality. So it, it comes pretty naturally. And are you, um, as you're going along, I mean, we never live in a perfect world where all the dailies are completely balanced, like the second angles might be a little off or have a green tint. Are you... Correcting them, color correcting them as you go. Um, Definitely, um, you know the editor will start working, and if the cut isn't, if it's hard to judge the cut because the A camera is so drastically different from the B camera, and a lot of this is not necessarily the colorist's fault. It's maybe the DP's fault, or or just you know, multi-camera shoots are very tricky to light. So at times you do come into this scenario, and yes, the assistant editor usually is the person to try to color correct it to make the cut play as smoothly as and possible. It could be shot on different days even, you know. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, some stuff, sometimes you shot the inserts for the scene a month past, you know, uh, way down the line, and, and the colorist didn't have reference or didn't realize what scene it was for and color corrected it just based on its own merits and not, you know, with the pre prior work in mind. Um, that's another, that brings up another point. It's kind of on me. If I see that, if I can't anticipate that, I will try to give the lab a heads up about that sort of thing. Like, Hey, use this as a reference when you're working on this shot, because it goes with the scene that you saw like a month and a half ago. And do you ever have the luxury of being able to bounce stuff back and say, look, can you balance this angle? Is that something that works? Matthew, do you see this? Yeah, we get those requests periodically. Um, you know, typically a dailies colorist, or I would imagine a dailies colorist is not going to spot that in the middle of dailies. You know, one of the great responsibilities of dailies is speed. So also they're typically processing dailies and grading dailies in, in camera order. So they're not necessarily mat scene matching, you know, the A cam and the B cam. And also the B cam could have rolled in three hours later in, this, in the course of the same night. Um, so usually that is not the emphasis, but certainly if we get requests from editorial to rebalance something, we can certainly pull up the, uh, usually the dailies colorist is saving a reference slide in the uh, dailies software to represent that grade of that yeah. scene and that take from that camera angle. So it's not very difficult at all, ergonomically or, other, or aesthetically, to, to match it. So the edit's getting together, you get past your 
you know, director's cut weeks and you're kind of hurtling towards that first preview. What are you doing to organise towards that preview? If you know, like, okay, there's a preview in two weeks? Um, you need to at least find out what the expectations are um, from your from your filmmakers as uh, and what are they prepared to do to get ready for this preview. Um, a lot of them will choose to cut right up until the point where you need to wrestle the <laughs> film away from them and say that's, you know, we're not going to make it um, any other way. So the idea of doing like a, a, a temp DI or, or some kind of color correction sometimes isn't even in the cards. Um, this conversation, the post-supervisor, studio, whoever is involved at this point, um, usually tries to get answers to these questions as soon as possible so we can have the plan in place. If we are doing a color correction, is it a full, like, are we, are we screening avid media, you know, kicking a cut back to the lab in DNX 36 and having them color correct our avid sequence essentially? Um, that's, that's fairly common. Matthew says that he does a lot of DCPs that way. Um, I, I think that that is kind of the happy medium between no DI, no color correction process at all, and a full one, which generally we don't have time for. Um, a lot of times it ends up in that world. A lot of times they just bring a deck into my room and I'm outputting, you know, the day before the screening. Um, Matthew, what are your top tips for preparing a, a preview for, say, a DCP screening or a tape screening? Well, probably the... the um one of the first questions we ask is, uh, are we actually taking the material directly out of the AVID um, as a self-contained QuickTime, for example, uh, and whether or not um, it's going to include anything that's been introduced color-wise. You know, if, if Ian has bounced out shots intentionally uh, you know, for, a better, for a better look, is that going to be included? Um, one of the things, that, one of the technical things that we really try to focus on is with the color science. Um, if we did the dailies and we know how that happened, then really we, all we have to do is ask ourselves how that, what that dailies pipeline was. But very often the dailies were done uh, either by another facility or they were done in another country, or you had this more recent phenomenon of the person with the laptop with the Resolve Light who is creating dailies even for a, for a full-blown theatrical motion picture film. So under those circumstances, one of the first things that we do is we have to track down who that person was and find out what their display environment really was when they were printing dailies, what the gamma setting was of the, of the display they were looking at, what color uh, pipeline they were printing from and into. And once we have those questions, and we're off and running, the next set of questions that we typically ask uh, have to do with framing. So if, if the Avid is inherently a 16 by 9 uh, HD device, and we know that this is going to be, a, say, a scope feature, well then the or let's say a flat feature, then the questions are, are we are we fitting it vertically and you're going to have pillar boxes on the left and right? Or are we fitting it horizontally and we're chopping off in the top and bottom? Very often those questions coincide with we don't exactly have the right framing chart or it's a little ambiguous as to whether or not we're going to take the whole thing and fit it into the DCP frame. Those are the usually the typical DCP-oriented questions that we get with a preview just in terms of representing uh, the material the same way that editorial is seeing it in their avid. And of course, as we, we were talking before about this, the audience of the preview is quite uh, quite a, something to kind of work out, really, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, if this is an informed audience, so if this is executives, if this is producers and directors, and the intention is to review is to watch a DCP for content, for rhythm, for pacing, for narrative, then you know that that's one kind of 
preview experience, if it's uh, an uninformed audience, quote unquote, people off the street, if this is a large theatrical environment, and these are- The supermarket in Paramus in New the, Jersey. The supermarket in Paramus, New Jersey, exactly. If those are people that are being lassoed into a movie theater to see a movie that is in progress, I've been to those screenings, uh, and yes, they they tell the audience that this is a work in progress, so the audio is not quite right, and you know it's the color's not adjusted yet. But then there may be more attention paid to perhaps actually doing like a DI light and taking the uh, uh, before the preview and taking a self-contained quick time out of the oven and actually doing a color crack, which we've done as well. Um, is DNX thirty six good enough um, for a preview? I I've screened DNX thirty six at like the arc light in LA. Um, oh, wow. and, and it, you know, a lot of this is, is dependent on the nature of the content. Uh, I, I think you run into trouble when you get into darker material stuff where the compression is really exposed. Um, also what did we do to the shot? You know, a lot of times it's like, it's been fed in and out of after effects for temp visual effects reasons. And, and it's like, you know, what's really important here. Uh, generally it's like, do you, can you understand what's going on? And and most of the time, I've screened just DNX thirty six because they will want to keep cutting, and there is no yeah. other way. Um, at times, I've had I brought stuff back in at DNX one seventy five. Uh, some of that requires, you know, I mean, the days of me having a, a shelf full of videotapes are gone, but, you know, so I can't, like, just go in and re-digitize. Um, a lot of this requires giving the lab enough time to restore and, and regenerate media. If they haven't been doing that all along, that's a nice luxury, too. Sometimes they generate DNX 36 and 175, and you can just pull the other one. Um, and that's a pretty certain process you can just relink to the 175 does that yeah. that works quite that's, well that's very easy to do yeah matthew are you finding that that's a request more and more are people really happy with dnx 36 um i actually think it's um what really drives it is what ian was talking about earlier how long they wait how long do they continue to cut in the cutting room before they actually have to screen and very often what's driving it is not an informed decision to accept the quality of DNX 36. It's just that the screening's in 90 minutes and they're still editing. <laughs> so we, we've had these scenarios literally here in this facility where you know, a DCP may have been planned, but because they're continuing to work, they literally will show up with the Avid project and the consolidated media on a hard drive and we will plug it into an Avid here which is connected to our router, and we project it in this, in this very room. And that was not necessarily a decision that was made well in advance. That was a decision that was made by accident by virtue of someone continuing to, to work. So as the time compression happens, the DCP goes out the window, and then the tape goes out the window, and then you've just got to screen directly from the Avid. Yeah, I'd say in general the, the, the tape processes seem to have really diminished. I, I don't know if that, that's your experience, Ian. Um, it depends on where the screenings are. Uh, a lot of a lot of studios and and you know the guys that they hire to run these screenings will insist on tape, and and it's it's always like, oh, come on, you know. Well, certainly, if you're going into a into a suburban kind of chain, I think tape is just far more known. You know. Yeah, they just want. They know it works. They know that the guys who are setting up the decks know how to do it, and they don't want to mess with that. I mean, the worst phone call to make is to try and find a DCP encryption key for a cinema 20 minutes before the screening because, you know, you'd know that. I, I personally get those, those emails uh, and those phone calls. Um, I do think there's an ergonomic uh, sweetness to the DCP as a preview mechanism. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the next generation, much more sophisticated version of a DVD. 
the fact that it's entirely file-based, and I don't say this out of any infatuation with file-based processes because they're very flawed in many respects, but the fact that Ian can give me a self-contained quick time, we have a conversation about color space, gamma, framing, and we're off. We can produce a DCP pretty quickly in any theatrical, digital theatrical environment in the country, assuming that we have that key. Uh, we can we can send it pretty easily. So we've got through the previews. We've got a nice score from the previews that everyone's happy with, and we're going to go because that I mean that's the thing. It comes down to all this work comes down to a number in a preview, and then you can kind of then start to think about turning over. So preparing for turnover, um, Ian. What are you What are you doing? Um, again, it's about expectations, schedule. Um, you know, a lot of times you will start your final turnover way before your film is final, um, most of the time. Sometimes this is based on your director of photography's availability, for instance. He or she is going off to Africa to shoot a film for the next six months. This is the window that we have with the camera, the, the, the person who shot the film. This is the only time we can get that person into the suite to do this work. So the important thing is getting it as much material as you have up on that screen and so that they can set a look and then usually your colorist can take it from there you know can take the work that they did during that 10 day stretch where you had your dp and and finish the film when it is ready to be finished so with that in mind i turn over the film let's say we're in that scenario uh, i turn over the film with just trying to have it be the most complete version it can possibly be. Um, meaning, especially with like visual effects heavy films, you know, you will have a lot of shots that most of your shots are probably still being worked on. Um, some of your shots may not exist in any form whatsoever when talking about like total CGI, you know. You're not obviously not gonna throw up a guy in a monkey suit waving a stick in the air in front of your, your, it's just going to freak people out. Um, you know, your, D, your DP is going to be like, why am I looking at this? So you need to weigh all of this stuff shot by shot. But if I have a shot where they just added some more trees to the background or they're adding some, you know, something minor to the frame, I'll, and I don't have the actual visual effects shot or I have a temp version of it, you'll plug in the work in progress or you'll plug in the, ca the original camera file in its place, because you can set the look for that. Um, the actual prep, do you want me to get into that yeah, now? Yeah, specifically, so, like what, do like, you, so, what are you turning up at an EDL? So if it is the facility that did your dailies, uh, that is a, it's a great thing. You know, I mean, basically, you have, you've already have this system in place. They generated all of your material, so it's like I'm giving the sequence back to them in a way that they can navigate it. And that involves splitting it out, basically going through it on a granular level and splitting out my layers, my video layers. I, I, I create new video layers to point them in the direction of what is this. And, you know, obviously your, your original camera material will be on the first layer. The next layer you will save for opticals, transition effects, speed changes, any kind of blow-ups, repositions, stuff that your DI can form will be responsible for. Your third layer could be visual effects, but works in progress. You know, you want them to know that we are going to be updating these shots as we get new versions. Um, your fourth layer could be visual effects finals. So they know that those are, that's it. That's that's going to go in. That's We're not going to mess with that. So on um, that second layer particularly, all the repos and 
um, that kind of thing. Right. How are you communicating that to conform? Does that just come through? And on on a level of you know, short of like typing up an email and and, and really really getting descriptive, which I do. Um, the sequence speaks for itself. This is why I separate it the way I do. So they know that that layer will always mean that. And a lot of times, a lot of times these transitions are between original camera, the on one side of the dissolve, the other side is a visual effects shot. So then you have to make sure that they know that too. Um, but they're really, you're, you're relying on them to check your QuickTime reference as well, really. Absolutely. If they yeah. see a shot on that second level, then they should check that against the reference. Right. Well, they're going to check everything against the reference. But all this stuff, all these repositions and, and, and dissolves need to match the reference. So, and as much as that will translate. I mean, you do run into, especially with dissolves, you run into things once we get into a P3 world they don't look the same as the 709 world. So it's like, you know, you, you really, and but the 709 world is what the, even though the data says, I did this dissolve exactly the way you had it, it's like the editor has been living with the 709 version of this. This is the way he built the transition. That's how it, that's what it needs to match. So it doesn't always, it's not always just and ones also and if zeros. It's a, if it's a 1920, 1080, frame in the avid and you're dealing with a say a 5k red file then yeah. it's not going to be a direct translation right. have but we need to we need to make sure that they match the avid because that is what they know that's what we've been living with and matthew then when you're getting this information how how is that conform editor organizing themselves and i mean do you have do you build the exact same lines uh, we we do, but we actually really start with the the avid project or the editorial project if it's not kind of an avid. Uh, one of the things that does complicate the process is if we only receive an EDL and the EDL is flattened, <clears throat> and the EDL was created that in such a way that it truncated the names of the camera files, and it uh, was created in such a way where um, camera original sources of different rasters and different frame sizes are intermixed in the same EDL. And we are expecting that before conform can even begin, we have to begin a process known as deburring, where we are essentially transcoding, converting the camera original content, whatever it is, whether it's ARRI RAW or RED R3D or something similar, we have to convert it to a format that will actually be used in the, in the conform and finish, which is usually DPX. So that really becomes a, um, a, a problem, putting it in candid terms. So we really need to work with the, we really need the AVID bin, and we are going to either split it out ourselves or preferably have editorial split the d individual camera formats into separate layers so that individual layered EDLs can be pulled, which is very much in the service of this transcoding process that is unique to frame size and camera type. So that's even before is, the conform begins. DPX is still the, the format of choice for. We purpose. wish that it weren't. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and nothing wrong with DPX inherently as a format, but. You know, the, the good news about DPX is that it's uncompressed and it's the highest quality format that is, A, going to best represent the material, and B, it is commonly accepted by virtually every platform that is used in the DI color and finishing context. The trouble with DPX, just as long as we're on the subject, is that it's uncompressed, and not every camera format these days is shooting uncompressed. They may begin uncompressed, so sometimes it's a little bit of a, of a workflow or a facility management drag. Uh, to have to go from a compressed format to an uncompressed format. But in general, yes, that is the ultimate mezzanine format that represents the camera original during the conform and DI process. So then um, that conform editor will return material. What do they return to the editorial? Well, the con you know, once the 
deburring or transcoding is complete and the timeline has been reconstituted in a conform platform. And the conform platform is usually Autodesk Flame or Autodesk Flame Assist or Autodesk Smoke or something to that effect. It could be Media Composer, it could be something similar depending on the, the nature of the film. But um, once it is conformed, then confidence checks are struck, uh, which is usually either a ProRes QuickTime, you know, 1920 by 1080 ProRes QuickTime, or it could be just Avid Media, good old Avid Media that we hand back to Ian, who is dropping into his media composer and verifying edit for edit, uh, event by event, that we did our job and that the edit points and the shots are in the right place. And that's being managed while, change, while changes, editorial changes are happening live. Yes, because it's not like the editor just stops editing as well, right? So, I mean, for Turnover to Sound, we talked about the whiteboard. The whiteboard's obviously out again, tracking versions. Each reel now has a different version number. Um, visual effects shots have different version numbers. Absolutely. Um, visual effects are a huge moving part of this, and a lot of times you will encounter an environment. You're going to get to a point in the process on visual effects heavy films where everything just needs to be judged in context. Um, but the quickest way to look at the shot to and, and give notes back to the artists and the vendors who are working on them are obviously in standalone format. So on a typical day you'll have a you'll have a, a screen a visual effects screening, which is basically all the new shots that came in that morning just in one long sequence, you know, as they came in. Um, then you will be at that screening, hopefully. Um, if you can't be your visual effects editor, better will, you know, if you have one, uh, will be there. Um, and you'll find out what are, what are the approved versions from that screening. Those all then, as quickly as possible, usually need to get into your DI conform. Um, this is where my separation comes in very in handy because I'll have layers up high just dedicated for updates. So I'll take I'll prep this even in the morning. I'll put all the new shots up there. I'll go to the visual effects screening. Once I know which shots they like, um, I will separate them out and generate an EDL for my editor, for my conform editor, um, to say these are the versions that we need to, to drop in. They're already cut into the reel, so the EDL points them to where they need to go within the sequence, as well as the, the internal sync of the shots. And the shots, ideally were screened in the same facility. So they're all on the server somewhere. So they're, they're just ready to go. This is, this is really like, you get into this stuff and this is kind of a lesson in how to break your DI editor. But um, a lot of times it, it just needs to happen as quickly as possible because they, you know, a lot of people just become in, incapable of looking at, at things out of context, especially when you're talking about scenes that are entirely visual effects, and you need to see how they cut together. Like if they added, if they added environment, you know, to a lot of visual effects artists are working on individual shots. They don't know how they cut together, even though you try to communicate as much as you can, eventually when you see them in your film, sometimes you will notice that, oh, these stars are totally different in this in these adjacent shots that can't be. Um, yeah. And on the larger teams that you've worked on, say on the the Bourne films and um and Winter's Tale, I mean, did you have a second assistant that what are they doing then during this process? Are they is it all hands to the pump? I mean it's a pretty intense right. time. Yeah, it, it it's it it's day to day, really. You manage your, you you manage your your before lunch and your after lunch, and you just be you try to make yourself um, 
this should be in, in as many places as you can. But uh, generally, I try to spend, you know, the only way to really know what is in the, in the film, what is really happening is to be in, in the DI theater. And a lot of times uh, on Winter's Tale, for instance, I had to be there because we didn't have a visual effects department anymore. The editor had already gone off to the next film. I was the only person that knew whether it was right or not. But when you're looking at a screen, you don't see version numbers of visual effects. You know, if it's obvious, like, oh, they added a dragon to this, and I knew that happened in, 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 in version 17, and version 16 did not have that dragon. That's obvious, okay? So if that, I see that shot and the dragon's missing, I know something's wrong. A lot of times the note is very subtle, and sometimes it's just a technical thing. I can't spot that just looking at the screen, so my second assistant is usually on an open chat with me if I need him to be in front of the Avid to say, like, what is the current version of this shot? Um, so I'll, I'll keep a constant line to the cutting room. It's good to have someone there. And so then um, you're just continually turning over these EDLs. Um, Matthew, how are you then keeping up with all these changes? And is there an organisational principle um, that, that helps you keep up with all of this? Um. It's so different from job to job, it's hard to really identify what that organizational principle is, and it largely is predicated on how much organization there was before turnover has begun. Um, I, I'll, I'll answer the question by simply saying that there is no asset greater than a, a very qualified assistant editor, um, such as Ian. And that is very often the, um, that is really, truly the, the uh, point of continuity um, into the DI very often, as again, as Ian was saying, when, when other members of the team have gone on to other projects and that's the last person holding the bag. So um, the organizational process, the way we track uh, uh, the change cuts and that kind of thing, it's, it's typically receiving a bin, it's, creating, it's either generating EDLs if the assistant editor doesn't generate the EDLs, or it's receiving the EDL and checking to make sure that it matches file names and time code and that kind of thing. So. The biggest change, the biggest change, I think, um, from thirty-five mil to digital has just been the pace at which this happens. Right? I mean, this—it's now possible because we've got the drive with all the shots on it, and you don't have to send away to rescan, which might take a day and a half. You know, that—that—it's the acceleration of time that you never get back. Right? I've actually always wondered this in a facility with uh, multiple scanning machines, and and like you know, that was really built up for the, like, the glory days of the film world. Um, how does that, in, 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 let's say, like, I'm on a film where we can just dominate it and, and like, have every scanner in your house working on my film, um, which doesn't exist in New York, I know. But um, how does that compare to restoring from LTO, for instance, like, in terms of how quickly we can have files ready online and your editor is working with them? Meaning, if every every scanner in the building were scanning film fresh, as opposed to scanning it earlier and restoring subsequently later, is that what yeah. you mean? Um, just e even if even if it was on a smaller scale, like if it was like you know a couple of new shots were added to this version of the film and we needed to restore them, how does that compare from scanning to LTO restore? I guess in terms of the pacing and the tempo of the finishing process with respect to that, I would say the only reason that LTO would still have the benefit of 
<clears throat> benefit of speed is not because of the mechanics of restore, it's because someone presumably at that point has already put their eyeballs on it. So if scanning has happened much earlier in the process, any flaws that are being introduced either because of uh, system or technical issues or because of photographic or, or cinematography issues, um, someone has presumably caught that if, if, if there was an attempt, if there was a conspicuous effort to conspicuous effort to ma made to to do these scans early on. So once you're restoring, you're restoring something that if it hasn't been signed off on or QC'd, at least someone has looked at it and established, has vetted the process start to finish. Um, if you are scanning as the DI is happening, then you're really putting eyeballs on it in that respect, not exactly for the first time, but of that quantity you may put be putting eyeballs on it of that quantity for the first time. I mean, it is one of the things as well that kind of, if you're not careful, gets extracted from all of these processes is that time to QC. You know, when we were dealing with film and that it was expensive to reproduce and it took a lot of time to scan, people really kind of sat and examined the shots as they were coming off a scanner. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the, the time and maintain a quality control? Uh, that's a good question. I think it also what also factors in is um, how much um, how many DRS passes are are happening on that. If we're talking presumably about uh, and by DRS, you mean um, by um, uh, um, uh, if we're talking about motion picture film, you are putting it through a DRS pass where you are making sure that uh, dust and scratches and that kind of thing is painted out. Digital restoration software. That's what that stands for, right? Yeah. Okay. So. You know it as DRS, but sometimes you actually forget what the what it stands for. <laughs> um, but it, you know, if if you are, I'm sorry, I lost sight of the question. Can you repeat? What oh, you just said? I just wanted you to explain what DRS was. Oh, okay. Um, but I um, know. But the question was, how do you still maintain the quality control that you had to do with film in a kind of digital environment? Oh, interesting. Um, when that that seems to be the first thing that's removed for the speed of everything that's. Um, it's easier to maintain quality control. Uh, again, this is what Ian was alluding to earlier. It's easier to maintain quality control if, if the facility is doing both dailies and DI, um, simult well, not simultaneously, but if it's doing the entire process. As far as uh, ensuring that the frame size is being handled properly in terms of the debayer quality, we've actually, if, if a facility, whether it's us or somebody else, has already done the dailies and we've already gone through those processes, there, that inevitably is a form of a QC process. But in the, in the scenario where we are, if we're doing a finish for a film that started elsewhere uh, or dailies were done in the field uh, and not by ourselves, um, then more effort is, certainly more effort is needed, more system time is needed, and more, more eyeballs on the screen are needed. So we've come to the point where we've got a lock, if that even happens anymore. Um, what is your job then? Do you just go, ah, put your feet back and get it's a pina colada? In the DI, it's usually about visual effects at that point. And your, your picture lock is, you know, a lot of times that will produce a, a ton of more brand new visual effects. But, you know, visual effects are the la usually the last thing to come in. And you are waiting right up, you know, you'll be right down to the final day, the final hour in some cases. These vendors will take all of their allotted time to kick you as, as much of the work as they can. So it's uh, updating these versions to the finals. It's tracking these versions. It's tracking notes on these versions. Um, it usually, like, I actually hate this. I mean, it, it, it like, in, in a way, it's, it's like the minutia of going to visual effects screenings every morning and, and just, you know, 
watching the same 20 frames over and over until someone says something's wrong with it. It's just like, <laughs> oh God, you know, I mean, it. and it's not always like you're dealing with flying horses. It's like sometimes you're looking at, you know, something so minor and, and really, really like someone in the room will, will find it, you know. So you look at something enough, you'll, you'll find something wrong with it. That's really what it comes down to. And then, you know, with your visual effects, you also have a very important added element, which is mats that go with them. Um, and these are, this is a way really that your, your conform editor really struggles with this stuff sometimes because the vendors will also, that'll be the last thing to come in as well. By mats, I mean, there are multiple layers of work that go into any given visual effect shot. And let's say they added stars to the sky. Your colorist needs to have discrete control over the foreground and the stars in the sky. How bright do we want these stars to be? We don't want to have to make we don't want to have to make individual windows to control the level of these the brightness of these stars. We want to have control over the star layer, you know. A lot of times the shot needs to be approved before your vendors will produce this stuff. So that opens up your whole color correction process. You know, your your colorist will then get a flood of these mats, you know, on the second to last day that you have allotted to finish your DI and we'll have to go through and set the levels of these. I worked on an unnamed fantasy series and the director insisted on getting mats for Centaur's eyeballs. Yeah. To change the colour of their eyes because uh, they had to do that at the last minute. It, yeah. You can get very detailed mats. Yeah, the more the more it goes into the shot, you can. I mean, a lot of times your your color it, it helps your colorist. It really does. Um, it's just you know sometimes it's the last thing to come in. So, so as they go into then mastering, they finish the DI. I mean, you're kind of packing up the avid at this point. What what is your what are your final bits of business? Uh, do you have to deliver things out of the avid? The, I mean, it used to be that they'd request the. Edit, you know, there's that bit in the delivery schedule, which is editor's code book and um, the yeah. folders. And I mean, you'll hit a point in, in terms of content. There's a point in every process where the most current version of the film does not live in the Avid anymore. Yeah. Um, it lives on the mix stage and it lives in your in your DI. And there are times where I need to get the most current stuff back because I need to produce something for a screening for some executives or some marketing people or, you know, an actor wants to see the film. International you know, that domestic sort of versions, perhaps. Absolutely, know. yeah. So, you know, but stopping the process of the mix or the, the DI is not an option. So it's like, you know, you try to, there are a lot of reasons why you need to request things, but you try to be economical as possible, as economical as possible when you do it. Um, but your job is never done. It's just like, then it you become, you're the conduit. You know, I know where generally being the last man standing in the process, I know where it all lives. Um, I know that, you know, we're getting visual effects on a certain day. I know the mix is at a certain point. I know ADR is coming in and then all these random places are what make up the current version of the film. So it's like, you know, someone needs to see the film, I don't have what I need to be able to do that anymore. And Matthew, as you're wrapping up, you're doing all the masters, you're making the HD masters, the DCPs, what is the bow that you're putting on that, the project then to kind of get it out of your life as well? Uh, it, I'm not sure the projects ever really get out of our lives. They, they do go <laughs> on for a lot. You know, the deliverables process certainly takes a long time. 
Um, you know, the dotting the I's and crossing the T's usually is uh, all the different versionings, especially for broadcast television. Um, you have Texas and you have texted. You have, um, you know, with closed captioning, you have without closed captioning. You have 720 for some networks, you have 1080 for others. Uh, in terms of uh, cinema delivery, you obviously have uh, uh, the DCP. Um, you, we certainly we also do film recording here, so you're actually making film prints, and we still make film prints, and that represents a different color pipeline, a different form of color management. And there is, as we were talking about earlier, there's there's QC with that as well. And there's uh, trim passes for each of those different deliverables to kind of adjust it now, or do you have color science that can just both? Really, I mean, there's there's color science, there's lookup tables that can facilitate trim passes um, if the budget allows it. Anyone would recommend a trim pass because now you have a human being doing it um, as opposed to just um, color science. Um, so it really comes down to the, the client, the scope of the film, and, and the budget, but both are possible. We would certainly recommend doing a trim pass for, for video deliverables. Uh, it's certainly no secret that many uh, broadcast television deliverables for a motion picture film were created just, just exclusively with color science. We actually do that pretty well, and it looked, it looked excellent. Um, but uh, ideally, you would have a, a trim pass for a for for a broadcast television out of a film. We're coming up to about the end of the thing, but I wanted to throw out to our audience now. Does anyone have any questions for our two uh, experts here? Anything on the process? Yes, down the back there. I'll just repeat the question. When you're uh, tracking the visual effects, are you using Excel, FileMaker? How are you doing that? Um, a lot of times there are, there are multiple ways. Uh, the, if it's a visual effects heavy film that has a visual effects department, an editor, a VFX editor, he or she has a database, usually in FileMaker, um, that is a growing beast. Um, I use the Avid as much as I can. Um, for updating, specifically talking about updating the DI, my sequence that I was talking about where I split out different layers is my Bible. And I, that is, I go by, I go by that, I keep that as current as possible. I utilize different layers for, for everything. Like I said, as I get new shots and it's happening every day, I store them in a certain place until I know whether or not they're going in the film, then they get moved down to a different place. Um, but having this separation allows me to make the EDLs necessary to update the DI. Um, the notes in general, when we're talking about visual effects, you know, keeping track of what people think of each individual shot, that is usually done outside of the Avid. Um, I, have an, I have my own system that means something to me, but if I hand that to somebody, it's not going to make any sense. It's just for me, uh, but it, it helps. I mean. You, you get into using different colors of locators, different clip colors, um, all sorts of things. Any other questions out there, Timmy? Uh, let's say you're on a small project, it's just you and the editor, and then you're shooting on Alexa, you know, off, you know, off site, and the DIT emails you and says, <clears throat> you know, what do you, what format do you emails you and the editor say, what format do you want for your habit? You know, what, the next HD 130 is about 115 or 36. Who's responsible for, you know, it's usually a part of that first meeting um, the question is who makes the decision about uh, 
you know, AVID resolution, DNX 36 versus something higher. Um, you weigh how much storage you have versus how much you think they're shooting. Um, what are the expectations with how this is going to look? Um, you, all of this factors in, and then you know you make a decision based on all of that. I would love to cut everything at DNX one seventy five, but I don't usually have the storage to do it. Um, so you have to. I mean that is a consideration. As I mean, um, you know, the film I'm doing at the moment. There's a green screen sequences. We um, requested one hundred and ten, but then the knock on effect of that is you need more storage which is going to be, you know, more storage over the 18 weeks of the cut, which is a little more expensive, you know. it's it's. I think it's that, that constant kind of, you know, judging, like, how much do you need? Um, you know, when do you need it? Some places will allow you to keep on adding storage. Sometimes you might be out in, you know, um, uh, in a remote location so you can only get one block of storage. It's, it's a kind of trade-off, I think, with all of those factors, right? Yeah. And this is one of the... Um Differences between motion picture film and, and broadcast television. Very, off the, very often the episodic television folks are actually getting two forms of avid media. Usually there's a DNX 36 for, for base editorial, uh, and then they're probably getting DNX 175, which is usually um, given to the, uh, the promos people, people who are making uh, any kind of marketing-oriented materials, commercials, etc. They usually want 175 because they don't want to do a conform. They just want to cut with it and output. So there's usually two, two flavors issued during the dailies process. Uh, for for episodic TV, editorial can usually pinch off of that too. If we need to go into certain scenes and and go to a higher resolution, it's nice to have that. Down the front here. You brought up uh, resolved light and the guy with the laptop. Are you the guy with the laptop? No. Because <laughs> we have to talk if you're the guy with the no. laptop. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my question. I mean, all these these flood of tier one shows coming. Here's the hard drives, you know, figure it out. You know, I, I know this is a loaded question, but in your experience of all these disaster, di, you know, homemade DITs, you know, and it, and it is pretty amazing that Resolve Light can do all that. What's your advice for the guy with the light? Someone says, hey, the, the iPad is a better representation of Rec. 709 or whatever than, than a laptop screen is. What is something I can tell them to say? Obviously, yeah, you should do a calibrated monitor. You should mm -hmm. do all these things. You should have a lab, <laughs> do your dailies. But no one, no one is doing that, and it's too tempting to just shoot ProRes Quad Four or you know transcode it yourself. That's a good question. I would say in inherently, there's actually nothing wrong with a guy with a laptop. It's not the equipment. Um, I would say the, the only real vulnerability that I can think of, and I'm putting this in very candid terms, is that the guy with the laptop, the person with the laptop, excuse me, um, the person with the laptop uh, is one human being. And I honestly don't believe that one human being can absolutely know everything that is necessary to make it all work. You know, the advantage of the facility environment is that you have a broad cross-section of different expertise crowded into a room. It's like the pre-pro call that we were talking about earlier. So I certainly don't know it all. Um, I have five or six or seven or eight or nine um, extremely well-trusted colleagues that I go to when I have a question about something that I don't know about. But that person in the field who is that person with the laptop and Resolve Light, um, 
they probably have the expertise that they need to do the last job that they just did, but not necessarily the job that they're about to do. And I think that's where things get really tricky. So I would recommend, if the guy with a laptop is the scenario that you're embarking on, that there's nothing better than communication with the facility to really get all the, quen the questions answered and the, the information on the table. And I'm not trying to give you a vague answer or an ambiguous answer intentionally. We've had both experiences. We've had the person in the laptop, with the laptop in the field who do it, did an excellent job and preserved uh, file names and time code and CDL information and communicated with us in terms of what the color pipeline was and what their color management tool was on set, how they were monitoring. Very often the person in the laptop is a close collaborator. They'll bring their display, their monitor into our facility. We will, color, we will calibrate it for them and send them back into the field. And that can, be a, that can be a success story. But we've also had scenarios that were not success stories, either because that communication didn't, didn't occur before the job started, or maybe the, the person hadn't been hired yet. So there wasn't an opportunity for that conversation to happen in advance. Or we've also had scenarios where somebody, unfortunately, wasn't as informed as they should have been when it comes to all the granularities of, of CDL preservation, of color science, of calibrating their monitor, using the right tool, and so on. There, I will say that there is a prevailing perception that you know, having a small footprint in terms of the equipment and the amount of money you spend for that equipment will, will be just enough to get you by, and very often that does get people into trouble. But I, I do think that the person with the laptop in the field, that scenario can work as long as you have all the things that I'm talking about. The communication, the support of a facility, will calibrate your display, all that, all that will factor into a, a positive experience um, so yeah, hopefully that answers your question. I mean, if you're getting um, just the, the drives handed to you to start first week in editorial, I, I would really suggest working out who you're going to be finishing with. And even the workflow test that we talked about doing during the camera test phase, you still want to do that workflow test, you know, in your first week of editorial, even though you've just been hired like on the Monday, you know, on the Tuesday, you, you probably want to work out where you're doing your DI and going in there and go, okay, so here's the drive, here's the editorial just to make sure that that's all buttoned up because n having something that won't conform is the worst possible scenario, you know. Um, not having the colour science measured out, you know. There's all sorts of different things that can come up. You know, the other vulnerability that I would, I would point out for that scenario in the field is that you just have fewer tools at your fingertips. You know, if we, if we run into a problem, whether it's with colorimetry or with sound or with continuity or whatever, um, there's 50 different tools under our roof that we can use to look at content. Um, so if one platform may be misrepresenting the image or doing a poor job of deburying or transcoding, we can drop it onto another system, a different software or a different piece of hardware or a different way of, of monitoring the, the content to see, is it, the, is it the imagery coming out of the camera that is the problem? Or is it the color tool that is the problem? Or is it is it a mixture of both? Is it our calibration? I mean, what is the what is going going on here? And the more tools you have at your fingertips, the more options you have to troubleshoot. So I think that's another benefit that that a facility environment may have over somebody who's just an individual with the proverbial lap laptop. I don't know if Clark or Joe have any other uh, perspective along these lines. somebody who basically is saying we're going to make it right if we screw it up <laughs> and we're not going to charge you for it. Uh, if you deal with a guy who's on your payroll and he screws it up, you pay him to fix it. And maybe you even have done no harm. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's another st strategy as well, which, um, you know, with certainly with tier one films, they're usually bonded and 
you you may, as the post super, want to loop whoever's bonded that film in to you know. Um, I mean, it, it it may be playing with fire, loading the loading the bond company, but also it may. They they will want to know, and they'll want to know early um, about that kind of stuff, and and that they can be some sometimes your best friends as well as the person you're trying to uh, you know um, wrangle all the time. I mean, I um, in a previous kind of job, uh, I was a dailies producer with a dailies you know a dailies cart that was going around, and uh, I told the story at the last uh, conference, but um, was talking to a line producer, and um, she had asked me. Why can't you do it just with one person? And it was Alexa Raw. They were shooting like four or five hours a day. It was like, well, we're going to run continuous shifts. And she says, well, you're just trying to get two people on my payroll. Why are you doing that? And I said, because we've removed an entire photochemical lab from this process. And so can you give me the two people, please? But, you know, the, I mean, if you're out in location, if you're in the middle of the boondocks and, you know, um, in a swamp somewhere, it is going to be a consideration for any crew to, to try and minimize the crew. And it... You know, but it, it it will have an impact for sure. Are there any other questions? This is a editing question, but Ian, I'm curious if you're in a situation where you're getting selects in, and the editor like just looks through the selects and thinks it's so great, and you definitely have what you need. Do you still go through and make sure you've seen every bit of footage that you get? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if if that is all, you know, some editors. I, I'd say, I think I said earlier, I get it all. The days of only receiving selects are kind of over. But some editors, us very few random people, will only want to work with selects, and I'll hide everything else somewhere else. Um, I do need to be responsible for all of it. Um, and you find, as an editor, just from a creative standpoint, you find solutions all over the place. Sometimes it's before they called action. Sometimes it's after they called cut. Um, you, you, I, I, I want to see it all. But um, if we are only talking about an editor who who wants to at least from a starting point work with selects, I, I do keep it somewhere and 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 keep track of it. You know, ironically, um, another shortcoming of file-based workflows in our modern digital cinema day is that back when dailies were printed to videotape. You couldn't get into the Avid without watching it. You had to watch everything yeah, just by virtue of capturing it uh, just to make media. Yeah. But that doesn't exist anymore. You know, Ian gets a hard drive. Yeah. Um, so it's actually more difficult for editorial, in my opinion, to manage, to time manage their day to actually watch everything. Uh, right. Um, and I worked with a lot of editors who make it part of their day, no matter what it means, to look at everything. Um, or at least look at selects, you know, just to make sure it's there, you know, that, that they don't have to make a phone call to the director saying, like, what happened to this? Um, and it's a really important key part of the process that, that sometimes gets lost because people are just trying to get through their day. Um, but some editors will insist on it, and they will find a, a way to do it, even if on, no one else on the team cares. Um, and if I'm working for one of those editors, I'm seeing it too. Um, a lot of times before they do or sitting with them when they do. Um, it just needs to, you know, it needs to be balanced with the rest of your day. Any other final questions? Oh, yes. Just a little more specifically on um, uh, repos and opticals and stuff when you, when you go to the conform. Do you usually 
generally just rely on a QuickTime reference for them to recreate all that in the DI? Or have you ever taken a step further with marker list descriptions, things like that? Anything, you know, pass that more specifically along? If it's necessary, I will get more specific. Um, a lot of times I have just kind of an unspoken system in place where the sequence I turn over with that on its own layer, pointing them to where it is, showing them that, hey, you are expected to do this, and the reference is enough. In some ways, in some cases, I don't really like what I did as an editor, and I want the facility to do better than what I did. In that case, absolutely, I need to, I need to tell them that or, or kind of describe it. One last question at the back, Tim. Say you're on a low budget to your one film, and so not a lot of VFX, but you know, with all these dailies coming in, and it's just you and the editor. You know, what's your, do you, how do you manage your workflow so you're, you're not spending too much time? You know, just, you know, you don't have a lot of time working you know, for this project. You right. Have, like with dailies coming in, and just everything we talked about today, like how do you manage everything? With, you know, how do you, you know, if I'm the only. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with this now on the next level, which is like I'm cutting the film and I don't have an assistant. It's like you have to, you have to, you have to like try to make it work somehow. Um, so I, I'd say the first thing you're responsible for is keeping your editor working and keeping them happy. Um, and a lot of times there isn't a way to, to get through the things that you need to get through and do that. Um, but that, uh, you know, that is eventually at the end of the day, that's really what matters. And if it's like someone else needs something from you and you can't accommodate it, you just need to be honest about that. Um, you know, the other side of that coin is if your editor is if you have the relationship with your editor to be open with this person, if they are having you sit with them or, 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 you know, if you have three fires going in the next room and you can't get out of your editor's room to deal with them. And I'd say I've tried to establish that level of trust with the person I'm working with to the point where I can be open about that and say, Look, I, I I love being here. I love like helping you with this, but I have this, this, and this. And a lot of times, they'll say, "Go, yeah, go." I'm sorry. I was just you know it's, I wanted you in the room letting, with me. Letting them to letting them prioritize for you in a way as well. Right. You know, you can say, "Okay, well, there's this going on. I can do this here, but these other three things need to. What should I do now?" You it's know, it's also it's just an understanding of of what you're really being asked to do who's asking for it and where does it rank in your in it's the also hierarchy with the, of with your the post day. supervisor as well <laughs> sometimes i mean it really Absolutely. helps yeah. for, to say to the post supervisor what should i do first and and you know you you manage them a little way to have them manage the priorities of the cutting room you know they the post supervisor is the person who has to ultimately deliver the film they know where all the moving parts may be even probably more than the editor sometimes for incoming deadlines you know they've kept a schedule it may be that you rely on that person to set your priorities for you i mean you can only be in one place at one time and you know unless you're the keyboardist from bon jovi with three different keyboards yeah. on three different avids 
um, you, you can only do one thing at a time, you know? Oh. Well, you know, I mean, my, my process is generally trying to make it as foolproof as possible for the facility. Uh, and if I can't get accommodate that, I have a conversation with my facility and say, can you get by with something less? Um, a lot of times, I think a lot of it as assistant editors naturally just inherently fall into this category. We will go, we, we are so obsessed with doing everything perfectly that we'll spend too, too, many, too much time on it. And it's just, you need to have this conversation. If, if, you're, if you're, you know, the chances are you don't need to just go down the full checklist for every turnover. Um, also with my sequences, I don't start from scratch every time the editor makes a change. If it's a minor change, you can kind of figure it out. You know, it's like if, if they just extended a couple shots, I can form my existing sequence. I'm not like taking a fresh copy of the reel and starting this whole separation all over again. If it's a massive restructuring, obviously you can't do that because it, it introduces too much human error possibility for human error but there are ways you know it's like but mostly at the end of the day it just comes down to communication i think that's about it i'd uh, like to thank uh ian and matthew for your time this has been really fascinating i'd like to thank um postbox technicolor for hosting it uh, my name is ben baker this has been turnover to picture thank you very much right. there will be drinks outside